Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. You ever look back on something you did and wonder, why did I do that? It was something that my mother just kept saying, why? She kept asking me why. And my answer was, I I can't explain it. I don't know how to explain it. There's no answer I can give you. I just don't know how to explain it. I just wanted to get off the phone and not deal with it and go back to my lack of concern reality. It's kind of a delusion, you know, that we were all in. That shared with everybody around me. I was I was drunk. I know obviously it's it's, it's not really an excuse, but um, I would never have done it sober. Meet people who've robbed gas stations, abused lab animals, and sent death threats via Twitter, and find out why they did it. I'm Kyone Wolf, and that's coming up next on Audacious, right after the news. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Why'd you do it? With some exceptions, you usually only think to ask a question like that if the thing that was done didn't turn out very well. And to be fair, it's also a question you might ask yourself at least a couple times if you're doing this life thing right. It could be a, a sign that you took a risk, you know, or you made a split-second decision that ended up not making you look too terribly good. But sometimes it's a question that's at the beginning of a difficult story, where you're the perpetrator of something that you look back on now and you don't recognize yourself. Or you do recognize yourself, and it's really not good. But at least you can tell the tale. Today, you're going to meet three people who can answer, why'd you do it? You'll find out what a woman who's now vegan thinks of her 10-year span in academic labs doing work that she now considers animal torture. And you'll find out why a man would commit nine armed robberies with absolutely no motive. And a word of warning, this first story mentions suicide. If you're struggling, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline any time of any day. That number is 800-273-8255. Imagine you're the subject of headlines like this. Everyday sadists inside the mind of an online troll. This is what it's like to go to prison for trolling. And we can't let misogynists take over the internet, be they male or female. That's what Izzy Sorley quite literally brought upon herself when she tweeted rape and death threats, not suitable to be repeated here on public radio, to Caroline Criado Perez, She's a feminist activist who, at the time, was rallying for Jane Austen to replace Charles Darwin on the 10-pound note. Yeah, a woman tweeted rape and death threats to another woman, and she went to jail for it. I asked her, why did she do it? I was was drunk. I know, obviously, it's it's, it's not really an excuse, but um, I would never have done it sober. Um, It's not something... I've done in the past is not something I've done since. It was just me 
being drunk and just jumping on the bandwagon. Like she didn't do anything to deserve it. Um, I've always said what I did was horrific, and yes, right, so I deserve to be punished. But I was, I was drunk. I what I mean, I have really suffered with, with with an alcohol addiction. So it was kind of just, it was another outlet. Um, I said it was, it was nothing really against them. It was just, it was trending. It was a bandwagon. That was, it's, it's as simple as that. When did you realize I'm in a lot of trouble? It was the next day. I woke up very hungover and just saw all these tweets and I was I don't want to swear but I was just like you can all right okay I was like like what what have I done can I apologize the account had been shut down by Twitter and it was literally the next day I was like sick to my stomach I was like what the way what the have I done I did contemplate actually handing myself in to the police especially when I saw my particular tweets like in the press I just just didn't have the guts to like in hindsight I wish I had of because it kind of would have shown that I was empathetic towards and, and was sorry. But I guess I kind of took the coward's way out and just waited and kind of hoped it would go away, which obviously it didn't. So, yeah, hindsight's a beautiful thing, though, isn't it? So in the joy of hindsight, obviously, I wouldn't have sent them. But then there came a day where the police showed up with a warrant for your arrest. I um, they actually turned up at my parents' house and my mom rang me. I think it was like seven o'clock in the morning. I was still in bed. And she was like, I've, I've got these police here from London. And I was like, I, can't, I mean, I knew what it was about. My parents didn't. And especially like London police, like it's, it's not all local police force. So my mom was like, why why are people, I travelled all the way from London to, to come and arrest you. And I guess I don't think I told them until it actually went to court, like what I'd done. I, I imagine that a lot of people in America who are listening to this are like, what? How do you get arrested for a tweet? That's crazy. But maybe you can articulate the difference. The difference I understand is there. there's free speech. There's, you know, you can say your opinion, but then there's a threat. Is that about right? Is that summing up? Um, in England, I wouldn't even say there was free speech. Um, and obviously, you, America, you've got, it's one of your amendments and that you can actually go around threatening people. And it, there's a lot of laws in, in England that obviously America don't have. Um, my thing wasn't free speech at all. It was threats and the threats have always been wrong. It was just, it was just the fact it was over a new outlet, like whether in person, if I'd stood in front of someone and said that I would have got arrested. So it's rightly so that obviously on Twitter, I said that and got arrested, but it's, it, it was a threat. Right. So I need, I needed to be punished. When you realized that you'd be sentenced to 12 weeks in prison, you, you served six weeks. What did that feel like? It's, it's kind of like it's a date that's imprinted in my mind. because I, I was reminded on the 7th of January 2014 and my whole world just collapsed. I'd never been in prison before. I mean, I, I'd been arrested before. I'd been arrested numerous times. I said I had a really bad problem with alcohol. I think I had like at the time it was like 20 odd convictions. So being arrested wasn't really an issue. Going to court wasn't really an issue, although like I said it was down in London. So that was like I'd never been to London before. So that was an experience. But yeah, to be put in like a London jail, like there's a massive north-south divide. Um it was hell. And everyone knew why I was in. So obviously in the press were making me out to be like this woman here, and there I was in a woman's jail, like it wasn't good. I, I mean, I lost my mind. I had like all the guards coming up to us, like, Where, why have you done it? Why have you done it? Um, I was actually on like Crime Watch. I don't know if you've heard of Crime Watch. It's like 
it's a program where they put all like the wanted fugitives on and I was on that whilst I was in jail so then I got known as like um his crime watch lady and like troll lady and and now you got my head kicked in and it was just it was horrible like Holloway just it completely you know ruined his it was just it was hell and I think it was made worse by the fact that if I'd been in a northern jail probably wouldn't have been as bad as just the fact it was a southern jail it was a completely different culture shock it was just it was hell like it broke us it completely completely broke us it was I mean I ended up in segregation um like mental health teams it was just hell it was horrible I want to talk about compassion I reading about you and meeting you now and talking with you I feel compassion for you and oh, at the same time I feel compassion for the two women who received those threats. And, and you mentioned that, you know, you there's a restraining order, you, you can't even speak their names. Are you able to talk about how you feel for them now? Um, I am sorry. And I, I, I did send an apology tweet. I, I do feel sorry for her. And I, I imagine it has ruined her life. And obviously what I've been through, she's probably suffered about a hundred times worse. And I said, um, she didn't deserve it. She didn't do anything to deserve any of this. Um, so yeah, I do. I, do. I, I would. I would love to meet her to apologize. I, I would love to, but unfortunately, it's 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 never going to happen. And you've mentioned that you dedicate a big part of your life today to creating awareness and talking openly about this and alcohol addiction and the choices you've made. You work with police. You go into schools to talk about what happened. Why do you do that? Why is that important to you? It's it's around alcohol and mental health, and also to stop the stigma attached to drug addicts and, and alcohol addictions and to educate say like the safest way to take drugs obviously not to take them but just be in the know you're not immune because like, I've been I've been to uni like I got my GCSE got my A-levels got my degree and kind of you think you're immune you're like oh my god I'm actually going to succeed at life but actually alcohol can get anyone and so can drugs drugs don't care who you are it'll, it'll get in you and destroy your soul so yeah that's, that's why we do it you still have really good days and really bad days like everybody, and probably really good parts of days and really bad parts of days. Uh, from your Twitter feed, I saw that you tried to kill yourself as recently as January, and I'm so glad that, that you're still with us. Thanks. So when you picture yourself at age, say, 45, what would you hope that older, wiser, more experienced, even more weathered Izzy <laughs> would say to you today? Keep going. Just don't stop because you, you made it, you're here. And accept help when it's offered. But I think the main one would be just, I'm glad you kept going. It's it's a day at a time. Don't take it a month at a time and or even an hour. Sometimes, especially because I've got um EUPD, so I, I can flip from emotions. It's ridiculous. EUPD? Like, it's emotionally unstable personality disorder. So I I can I can flip. It's ridiculous. I can go from like I mean, I'm all right now because I said I kind of I manage it through exercise. Um, but when I was ill, I could kind of flip from, oh, my God, I hate myself. This is despair. Like, I'm going to try and kill myself. And then just a couple of hours later, I'm like, all right, I'm fine. I'm good. So it's crazy how, how quick I can flip. So like my CPN used to always say to me, just, you know, you know, it'll kind of be over in a couple of hours. Just get through them couple of hours. So I guess that's what I was saying to myself. Just get through them couple of hours and never give up exercise. Like, like, cause I'm, I'm, I'm training for a boxing fight. So yeah, hope, hopefully I'll win. <laughs> I hope <laughs> you, know? you win. Yeah. I hope, I hope I win. So 
yeah just ne- never ever give up exercise because I've given it up before and I piled on the way again and yeah it's 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 great exercise because I said it keeps me stable like I'm, I'm medication free and it's just it's, it's awesome exercise just never ever give up exercise so. well congratulations <laughs> cheers Izzy Sorley thank you so much for talking with me all right nice one Izzy Sorley has been sober since June 29th, 2016. If you're struggling, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is 800-273-8255. When we get back. I thought they were adorable, but at the same time, I was doing all these procedures on them. Hear the story of how one woman went from animal torturer to vegan in one lifetime, and how a man didn't realize why he committed nine armed robberies Till he heard an offhand comment while sitting in jail. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Stay with me. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Today we're asking, why'd you do it? To three people who've made terrible mistakes in their lives. You'll meet a guy later in the show who committed nine armed robberies. But now I want you to meet Rama Ganesan. Living in the Midwest, she's been a vegan for 10 years. But back in the 80s, she couldn't have been further from it. We found her from a piece she wrote on Medium.com titled, What I Learned from a Decade of Torturing Animals. By the way, let the title of that article serve as a warning. And I'll warn again later when we get to that point in our conversation. Don't listen to this one if the title of her piece made you feel super queasy just then. In that article, she said that even though she always loved animals, she felt as though she'd been taught to otherize them. I asked her what she meant. Yeah, it's um, otherize them. Well, you know, they're not us. And I don't, I mean, animals are not us. But not only are we taught to otherize other animals, we're taught to otherize other humans as well. So, you know, that's another thing completely, but definitely all humans otherize animals. We, 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 we abstract them. I mean, they are um, abstract concepts and symbols. These are, these animals are food. These animals are transportation. These animals are wildlife and so on. You'd also mentioned in the article, Descartes uh, and quoted uh, Descartes maintained that animals cannot reason and do not, (laughs) it's hard to even say it out loud and do not feel pain. It's obvious to us now, on some degree, like, of course they feel pain. Of course animals feel pain. But there's something in us that doesn't want to, doesn't want them to feel pain or doesn't want to feel bad about them feeling pain. There's a thousand ways to look at it. I don't know. How do you pull that apart? Well, okay. With the animal research that I was doing, I mean, it was on anxiety. I mean, on the graduate lab, it was on animals worrying, <laughs> feeling anxious. That's what it was about. So we were working with rats and getting them to feel anxious and giving them anti-anxiety drugs under various different conditions. But at this, and then of course I later on did other things like pain and so on. But ultimately it's like, yeah, they are feeling anxious and they are feeling pain, but they're not really feeling it. You know, we almost think animals are disconnected from their own pain, you know, it's something that's, but they're, they, we don't think that they have the interiority, the subjectivity that we do. But when you think of, oh, they have to have, it has to be. How can pain be not subjective? How, it doesn't make any sense, does it? And maybe it's, 
you know, we don't hear a dramatic monologue from the rat about the story of what it went through and what it felt like. It's not human. And, and maybe is it is it because we feel like they're not human? So there's this line, there's human, and there's everything else. Do you see it as that much of a chasm? Yes. It is a huge chasm, I think. Um, but then you see, we also have chasms between humans themselves, okay? We enslaved humans, legally enslaved humans, and then they underwent all kinds of atrocities, and, and it's not over, and we still continue to do certain things and, and treat people in a certain way. So The caste system. The caste system, of course. And um, so that, that chasm is not only between us and animals, but it's also a chasm between humans and other humans. And, and, that, and, and so as far as other animals, I mean, we were uh, going back, you know, prehistory, we were hunting animals to eat. And um, uh, we, it, was, it was some kind of a equal relationship because we were also prey. Uh, but it was a fair fight. Yeah. I mean, you know, until we got super smart and got tools and, and fire and, you know, all that stuff. And uh, it's not a fair fight anymore. Not at all. Yeah, I mean, and you know, language. You bring up language. That's an important point. Maybe, maybe that's an also important thing to look into. As you know, we don't really understand animals. We think they don't feel certain things because they can't express it in language as we think of as language. I want to back up to your time working in the labs, which is what you really focused this article on. And and this is the part of the interview where I want to let my lovely listeners know that if they don't want to hear descriptions or more details of animal torture. I mean, nobody, I imagine very few people actually want to hear descriptions, but if that's too much for you, just come back in a minute or two. What are we talking about when we're talking about animal torture? What kind of things would you do in these academic research labs? So you, you only want me to talk about that part where I don't... To the degree to which you're comfortable? Don't, don't read that part. <laughs> it's tough. Um the worst thing was putting uh, like live rats into a guillotine and chopping their heads off. And then all the other various procedures, you know, cutting bits out of their brains, their bodies, their organs, some, you know, under anesthesia, but um, to what extent they were really, you know, painless or, or somewhat painless. I mean, I, I don't think they were, you know, inserting things into their brains, um, into their other parts of their bodies. Um, I know I, I talked about one study that people were doing where they were getting starving rat mothers to get them to eat their own babies, collecting babies and baby rats a day old, because you know, neuronal cell cultures are developed from um, neurons from uh, one day old baby rats. So they used to kind of harvest those baby rats and, and take them apart. And they weren't anesthetized. Now, I, I don't know how, what the, how their pain system works, but it, the, 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 again, the uh, uh, consensus, the scientific consensus was that, well, they don't, they don't need anything because they don't feel pain, but they like take them apart, peel them apart and get the brain out. Yeah, that reminds me that even the pain tolerance of human babies isn't really well understood. And like even sometimes circumcision is done without pain relief on babies. Right. And the, the babies thing is actually a really good point to bring up here. And uh, we said the same thing about uh, black women, you know, certain procedures were tested out on black women, black men too. You know. When you were in these labs doing these things, um, what was it like for you? Really strange um, in the sense that I was really interested in uh, trying to get ahead 
in uh, the way that I thought I should be getting ahead. I was doing, I mean, you know, and you know, there were like easy ways to get ahead, which I didn't think about. For me, it's like, oh, it had to be hard. <laughs> I had to do, I had to, do, I, I can't take any uh, shortcuts. I have to do all the work. So, you know, it was all about my own kind of, um, I wouldn't want, I don't know whether to call it ambition, but I guess that's what it was. And um, I wanted to get ahead and do all the work that needed to be done, working, you know, long hours and into the weekend. Um, did everything I was supposed to do. Now, I thought these animals were really cute and cuddly. You know, I thought they were adorable, but at the same time, I was doing all these procedures on them. I remember this was when, this was when I was like uh, about 24 or so. I remember I was talking to my mother and I was saying, you know what? I would love to have a rabbit and a kitten and a mouse <laughs> at home as a pet, you know, as pets. At the same time, I was I had these hundreds of rats in, in the lab in the basement and, and doing all these procedures on them. So there was... There was cognitive dissonance, but it wasn't it wasn't in the front of your head at the time. No, it was uh, it's kind of a delusion, you know, that we were all in you know, that I shared with everybody around me. So it was 20 years between your last day in the lab and when you began life as a vegan, which, of course, means that. Anything made out of, or my cat just jumped. <laughs> my cat got the cue to jump on my chair behind me. That's perfect. Good job, Nephthys. So being vegan, of course, means that you do not eat, drink, wear, purchase, or otherwise consume animals. There's no place in your life in that in that way. Tell me about your decision to become vegan. Was that was it one thing that sort of sealed the deal for you, or was it cumulative? It's both. It's both. So uh, my, I read the book um, called Eating Animals by Jonathan Safran Foer. I read the book and it was, oh my gosh, is this really what's going on? This is really terrible. Um, but you know, I didn't go vegan right away. Um, it took about a year, of, a year, a whole year of me thinking about it. So more, doing more research. So it was both one thing that kind of set the ball in motion and then uh, uh, gradually over time, uh, finding out more and more and more. Looking back at those times in the labs, you've said that you, you profoundly disapprove of what you did, but you have a hard time really getting in touch with that regret, like really feeling that regret and stewing inside that. Will you talk about that disconnect? And, and this is a common, I imagine, a common disconnect whenever you regret anything you ever did. Like, it feels good to acknowledge it, but to really sit with it is very difficult. It's very hard. You know, you just don't want these thoughts in your head. You know, it's like uh, la 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 la. You know, close your ears. <laughs> fingers and ears. I don't want. My, I don't want to hear about it. I don't want to think about it. And I think in some way it's also a little help. It's healthy. Uh, why stew in that? You know, why kind of drive yourself crazy? Those things were in the past. I, I mean, I could almost forget that I was the same person who did all this stuff in the lab. Yeah. So between you know eighty one and ninety one, eighty two, ninety two, so so on. But at some point in time, you you had I had to kind of connect back and say I was the same person. I was the one who did all these things, um, and that's why I wrote that essay. Um, yeah, and I think I mean some disconnects are are good. They keep us sane. And whether you know I tend to have a panic attack about it. Um, you know we don't we we can choose not to. I know there are people listening who are a lot like me. I eat meat. I consume animal products. And at the same time, I, I really love animals. You know, I have a really sweet dog and I have two very charming cats and I have six chickens in our backyard that provide us with eggs and 
laughter because chickens are often really ridiculous. But I'm living in this world where the contradiction exists. I love animals and I'm okay enough with killing animals if it suits my interests. And, you know, if I've got my cat in my lap while I'm eating a hamburger, I experience no cognitive dissonance about it unless I want to confront the difficult reality that's behind the history of what went into that burger. But I don't want to, right? Like, it, it's it's uncomfortable and that burger is delicious and I want to have my meat cake and eat it too, right? <laughs> and I know that this is the billion-dollar question, but what do you say to someone like me to put my soul in front of the flamethrower of that cognitive dissonance and to also empower me to feel motivated to give up that burger and see the wholeness of all animals, not just my charming cat who whom I would not eat if you gave me a billion dollars. Well, I mean a billion yeah. is a lot of is a lot of money. But but you know what I you know what I mean? Like what would you say to me? So the, you're asking me how would I make you into a vegan? Is that what you're asking me? Yes. Yeah. Um and I don't do that so much as I used to. There's plenty of other people who do <laughs> they're all the so there's so many of them. I don't need to do that anymore. But what would I do? I mean uh, if I wanted to do that, I would say, you know, there's so much information out there. You know, you could read that book. <laughs> Google it. You could, <laughs> as you, you could, yeah, go to YouTube or, you know, so many um, documentaries. There's so so many documentaries. I guess, I'm sorry to interrupt you. I guess the, the it's this, it's the chasm, right? It's the, I don't wanna. I know I, I read your essay, you know, there's that book and I can read it if I want to, but like, it's just so convenient for me not to do that work because then I get to eat my burger and pet my cat. Like it's, I don't How do I, what would motivate me to do that work? <laughs> I mean, is it really work to watch a documentary or read a book? Is it, is it work? I mean, to, to take that first step, I'm not saying like do a PhD on it, you know, just do that first step. Is that, is that really work or even like follow up a social media page and they'll see the occasional meme or whatever? Is that, is that really work? I guess mainly it's the terrible discomfort of knowing that this is problematic. And but you know, it's problematic already. You're telling me it is, you know, it already, yeah. you already know it. What do you need? Uh, I would, okay. People meditate. Okay. And they can, they reach this level of, enlightenment and they know certain things but they still have this chasm and they they still don't uh believe certain things about animals just so you know it's not just you know what maybe you know i was thinking you know they have the you need some psychedelics or something to break down this barrier and that's uh, that sounds kind of stupid but you know it's somewhat it is that it's a kind of a brain thing it's a kind of a mental block that we have it's an empathy block so you know grow your empathy do you think Knowing that you could go from one mindset to another is both really powerful. You know, you think about the evolution of one human being throughout their life. And it's also really scary, too. You know, like it makes me think, what are we capable of currently that much later in life, maybe we'll look back on and say, what was I thinking? Right. I think that's absolutely right. Um, I welcome it. 
Oh, I love it. I, I'm living for epiphanies. <laughs> <laughs> I'm living for the next big thing I'm going to find out. I mean, yeah, it's it's totally true. And I, I'm, I'm sure there's plenty of things. And it's okay. So this animal thing and I'm doing this anti-caste thing. And I wouldn't even have been there if it wasn't for what I learned about animals. And then who knows what the next thing is going to be. And, and uh, I think it's great. So bring on the epiphanies. Yeah, please. <laughs> With or without the psychedelics. <laughs> <laughs> oh, maybe we could do a show about psychedelics and I will host it while on psychedelics. All right, it's happening. Rama, I'll make sure you're in on that one. <laughs> well, Rama Ganesan, thank you so much for talking with me. Uh, you're welcome. After the break. I was probably more calm doing this than I would have been buying gas. You know, consequence was a figment of the imagination. I had nothing to worry about. And this was going to be interesting. I wonder what this was going to be like. Nine armed robberies, no motive, and one exceptional story. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Be right back. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Today, three people answer the question, why'd you do it, after having done some pretty terrible things. I first heard this story through a podcast called This Is Actually Happening. And let me tell you, it took me for a ride. And a word of warning, this upcoming story deals with heavy themes like suicide. If you're struggling, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline any time of any day. That number is 800-273-8255. Kevin McShane lives in Huntington, Long Island, and when he was in his college years, he, like almost every human being who's ever lived, was feeling anxious. It was 2002, and while everyone around him seemed to be living their dreams, he was stressing about his future. So when he reported this anxiety to his therapist, they put him on an anti-anxiety, anti-depression drug called Paxil. It's an SSRI, a drug like Prozac, Zoloft, or Lexapro that treats depression by increasing levels of serotonin in the brain. Now, for many people who get put on an SSRI, it can be a real lifesaver. Antidepressants are some of the most commonly prescribed drug classes in the United States, and most people who have depression get better with treatment that includes these medicines. But for a small number, the reactions can range from increased suicidal feelings to experiencing unusual risk-taking behaviors. And Paxil, in particular, has had some controversy. In 2015, researchers re-examined results from earlier clinical trials and determined that the drug was unsafe for teenagers. And there have been high-profile lawsuits against Paxil's parent company, GlaxoSmithKline, claiming the company had not sufficiently warned of risks associated with the drug. A few weeks after Kevin started taking Paxil... He was watching the movie Bandits with Billy Bob Thornton and Bruce Willis. And while most of us would turn it off at the end and go to bed, Kevin stayed up, thinking. Even though he was living rent-free at his parents' house, he had plenty of money and he didn't have any addictions or debt, he thought, huh, how hard could it be to rob a gas station? So within a very short period of time, I picked up a knife from my parents' kitchen. I drove to a gas station. Uh, I walked in 
And the thing was, I was incredibly calm. I was probably more calm doing this than I would have been buying gas. You know, consequence was a figment of the imagination. I had nothing to worry about. And this was going to be interesting. I wonder what this was going to be like. And, you know, the first robbery kind of typifies how bizarre the whole situation was because I walked in, I walked to the attendant. I, I, I didn't really have an idea of what I, of what I was going to say. It kind of felt like I was living in a movie at this point because this was the last thing in the world that I ever expected I'd be doing. I asked him if I could write a check. I don't know why. It was the first thing that popped out of my mouth. He says no. Then I quickly take a knife out of my jacket and I say, this is a robbery. And, and I'm almost enacting, you know, you see enough movies. I'm almost repeating the, the things that I've heard. This is a robbery. He's very shocked because I'm very calm. He doesn't really know to take me seriously or not. Eventually, he does get the money out of the register. He gives it to me. Now, I'm talking to him very calmly. I'm, so I'm not here to hurt you. I just want you to understand that I, for some reason, I felt the need to constantly tell them that I was not going to hurt them. Very reassuring. Reassure them. This is not your money. This is the gas station's money. Don't worry. I'm not here for your money. And I, and I don't know necessarily why I felt the need to say that. Maybe I felt it was a way from, for them to not feel threatened. As I'm saying this, a car pulls up. And this is the point of the robbery where I'm, I'm, I'm supposed to run because this could get very complicated. But being in that incredibly calm state of mind, I knew that the last thing I should probably do was run. I should handle the situation as it comes. This is going to be interesting, I thought to myself. <laughs> so I put the knife back into my jacket. A kid about my age comes in. He walks into a, to a man who doesn't speak perfect English, screaming something about a robbery or this and that. The kid turns to me. I turn to the kid and I say, I say, listen, I don't know what happened. Somebody robbed this guy and I just walked in. He's doing the same thing. So I just walked into this chaos just like you did. So I'm going, who's trying to rob you? What's going on? The kid has no idea what what to you know how, how to make sense of this whole situation. He says, I just want cigarettes. I said, listen, let me try and help this guy because he, he's not making any sense. Might as well just get your cigarettes and leave. You know, the guy eventually said that he got, he got robbed by two people because he thought we were in on it together because we were talking, you know, as if we knew each other. And that could only happen if I was in that incredibly calm, disaffected state of mind. It felt like I was able to play chess with the world around me because I didn't have to, you know, emotions kind of guide us in and out of situations. And if if for some reason I was in the middle of an armed robbery and I wasn't in that state of mind, I would have ran instantly when some other person came into the uh, into the situation because it would have complicated it. And, and, and you know, but yeah, too many variables, too much, too much, too much, too many variables. Exactly. So I thought to myself, well, that went fairly easy. I might as well just drive down the block and do that again, which I which I did. I drive down the block. I saw another open gas station. I walked in very quickly and easy Did the robbery, got the money, walked out and drove to Manhattan and just spent all the money that night. Uh, went home, went to sleep, went to work with my father the next day as if nothing happened. And you weren't like racked with guilt. You weren't. That's the thing. I'm racked with guilt normally if I say something that was slightly inappropriate the night before that the person I said to probably didn't remember. Right. You lose I sleep over that, right? Going, what is wrong with you? Why would you say that? You misinterpreted that. So I think the next day was probably the ultimate you know, proof to me that I no longer had to play by the rules of society because beyond not being racked with guilt, fear, concern for my safety, concern with being caught, I was as scot-free from the feeling of, of you know, pain, suffering, and anxiety as you could possibly be. 
And you also weren't really concerned about what this was like for the people who you were robbing. No, no. Fear and anxiety are our source of empathy, in my opinion. So when we feel fear and, and we feel anxiety, it's to avoid pain. So fear, anxiety, and pain are all part of like a trilogy. So when you no longer feel fear, you no longer feel fear of having pain caused to you. You no longer can empathize with the pain of others because you don't have pain within yourself. That's essentially what a sociopath or, or a psychopath is. You're, you're incapable of feeling your own pain, fear, and anxiety. So then you cannot project that onto other people. And that's the opposite of who I am. I am an incredibly empathetic person normally, maybe too so. And I, I, I have two wonderful children now. And, and if one of them has a toothache, I have the toothache, you know. You know, empathy drives me. Empathy guides me. It's part of who I am. But, you know, that's how that kind of drug works to create a sociopath. This is someone who does not empathize or worry or concern themselves with the feelings and emotions of others because they don't have feelings and emotions themselves. So... This robbery spree went on for a period of 10 days. Ultimately, it was eight robberies over a period of 10 days. Kevin's robbery spree ends in Sag Harbor, New York, where he's pulled over for DUI. His family sends him to rehab for drinking. He's still on Paxil. And about a month into his time in rehab, he's on the phone with his mom, and she's telling him that he is on the news. He's been found out as Long Island's gas station bandit, and she is baffled. It was something that my mother just kept saying, why? She kept asking me why. And my answer was, I I can't explain it. I don't know how to explain it. There's no answer I can give you. I just don't know how to explain it. I just wanted to get off the phone and not deal with it and go back to my lack of concern reality. His parents turn him in and he goes to jail where he starts going through withdrawal from Paxil. He says it feels like weird electric shocks through the body, feeling like, uh, The electricity is coming from your foot into your brain and zapping your brain. So he gets out on bail and he goes back to rehab. Since the judge is letting him stay out of jail till sentencing, Kevin flies down to Florida to visit an old friend. But he forgot to bring his Paxil. And he goes through withdrawal again. So by the time I got back, they had upped me to 40 milligrams. I learned later that you're most likely to experience the manic reaction when you first start taking the drug and when you increase and decrease dosage. So by stopping for a week, by just starting the 40 milligrams, when I came home, that manic reaction hit me like a lightning bolt. So I decided I was not going to jail. I was gonna go on a, on a Bonnie and Clyde adventure, just missing the, just without the Bonnie, I couldn't find a Bonnie. So it was just gonna be a Clyde adventure. And I mean, this was such a poorly thought. I did. There was really very little thought put, put into this plan. But I was just going to go on a robbery spree throughout the United States and survive as an outlaw. That, I mean, that I, this plan took about eight seconds. Which is on <laughs> par with every other decision you've been making this whole time. Like every other decision. So I grab a knife. I go to the first gas station that's open. It, this was in the middle of the day and a very busy day. And like I think it was a Tuesday in March. The entire auto shop chases me because it's one of those gas stations with the auto shop. They're all chasing me. I'm in the middle of Jericho Turnpike in Long Island, which is like a major thoroughway, holding a knife up to try and stop them. And they're all pausing because I look like such a crazy person that I would dare stop and turn around and look at them. An officer passes me on a one lane road, sees me, does a quick three point turn, comes behind me with the sirens on. 
Now I rolled the window down and start waving him past as if he went that away, you know? Which is just like when you had that first robbery, when the person came in, you got had to think really quickly and sort of act like you belong. Right, I was like, how am I gonna get done? Like, no, he, I saw the guy, he went that way. Yeah, right. <laughs> and he's going, I'm <laughs> he's pointing at me knowing, no, that, that one's not gonna work, guy. So I pull over and he looks at me, there's a knife and cash all over the seat. I look at him and I'm like, well, obviously I gotta go. And I slam on the gas. I go eventually to make a right on, on 347, which is a main road in Long Island not knowing I'm going right past the precinct. There was, it had to be 15 cars on me with that, within a matter of seconds. And I'm going about 90 miles an hour and they're ramming me in the back. And every time they ram me, I just turn the music up and this isn't happening, this isn't happening, and this isn't real. This is actually happening. <laughs> There's a helicopter above me. At that point, I decided that the jig was probably up. And with no emotion. And I really don't get emotional when I talk about this because uh, there was a suicide attempt, but it wasn't me who made that suicide attempt. I don't, I don't feel, I didn't do it out of despair. I, I, I wasn't in pain. I wasn't, oh my God, what have I done to myself? It was, the video game is over. I lost time to turn it off. That's about as much thought that went into that, that action. And now I'm just waiting for the light to go out. And after about, ten, I don't know, five minutes, I just, I decided, no, that didn't work. And, and apparently that game is not over. And apparently I'm supposed to keep going. So I just kept driving around through about three towns. We went on this long high-speed chase. Eventually I'm running out of gas, which, which I said always was ironic because I robbed a gas station. And, uh, I wind up making a right into a hospital, which was actually the same hospital where I was born. And I'm laying in a gurney. Over the course of that night, I was drifting in and out of the reality of this is real and this is not. This is real and this is not. And uh, eventually I was transferred to the court system. Uh, my family now as I have two kids, I, I could never give up on them, but I can understand where they were. They were, they were giving up on understanding it. That's what they were trying to do. I mean, they, they, they just couldn't understand it. This came out of absolute nowhere. And, and you can't look at the big picture because there is no big picture that makes any sense of this. So in a way, you just bury your head in the details, and I get that. In an act, I think of serendipity. I, I, as I'm coming off the antidepressants, and, it's, and, and now the dream has become a reality, or the nightmare, if you want to call it, has become my, you ever wake up from a really bad dream and say, oh God, thank God that was yeah, a dream. Definitely. This was the absolute opposite of that. Yeah, I just woke up from a really bad dream, but the dream was 100% real and I was 100% dealing with the consequences of that. It was so unfathomably bad. I was on suicide watch. I had access to nothing but a, but like a mesh mattress and a mesh jumpsuit. A guy tells me, oh, you, some conversation with another inmate about being on antidepressants. He goes, Oh, those, those, those things are terrible, man. You ever come off those things? I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, you know, what those, those antidepressants do to people. And a light bulb went out oh, for the first time. I said, wait a second, I'm not totally withdrawn yet. So I'm still not completely enough myself to really grasp it. But I do call my mother and say, Hey, could you go online and take a look at, at some of the stuff about SSRI antidepressants? See, now we were still in a horrible situation, but she understood it immediately because 
it wasn't just the robberies. It was everything about the way I was acting that was spelled out in the in the non-approved literature. Now, this is the stuff that you had to search for that eventually became the approved literature after the 2004 congressional hearings where they forced GlaxoSmithKline to admit that Paxil had all these side effects that were hidden. I heard a relief in my mother's voice, like nothing I've, you know, like, and, and it wasn't because I was free now. It wasn't because I was going to get out. It was because, oh my God, this makes sense. It's the only thing that's ever made sense. I didn't raise that monster because she didn't. And we had a defense, at least, to a degree. All right, so Kevin fought the case for two years and decided to take a 10-year plea instead of going to trial. He did eight years and got out in 2011. Now, it must be said that just because you're on an SSRI doesn't mean you're going to rob a gas station. That what happened with Kevin isn't what happens to most people by far. But all that being said, I wanted to know what he wished he knew before that first visit with a therapist considering all he went through. The thing that I wish I knew at that state, let's say I could go back and speak to myself as I'm driving up to the psychiatrist's office. I would say, listen, you might be asked to take a psychiatric drug. I would then say, I would like to go home and speak to my family members and do my own research and see whether or not this might be a drug that would be a fit for me. I also would like to know what type of follow-up you're going to offer in the case that I don't feel right or something doesn't feel right? Am I going to be able to call you at nine o'clock at night? Or do you have some sort of a service you can offer me where I can reach out to someone and say, something's not right with this drug. What should I do? Should I stop taking it? How do I taper off? I want to know every possible negative effect this could have on me. Even if there's a 1% chance that it does, I want to be prepared. I also want to counsel everyone in my life, hey, I'm about to start a psychiatric drug. I want you to tell me if you see differences in my behavior that seem really odd to you, because I might not notice them because the mechanisms in my mind that would notice them, those red flags are going to be kind of nullified because it's an anti-anxiety medication. Those are the things I would really, really advise. I, I, I would also advise anyone seeing a psychiatrist or a therapist, they should get to know you well enough within at least three or four visits before they're willing to prescribe you something that could have some you know, significant, potentially significant side effects. So if they're offering you something on the first visit, I would say thanks, but no thanks. I'm gonna go and maybe reach out to somebody else. Your story has a lot to do with fear. And so I wonder how you see fear now. That's a very interesting one because uh, I heard an interesting quote recently that really typified how I feel about fear. I think it was uh, a philosopher, Alan Watts, who stated, you know, if, you, if, you, if you're afraid of something, walk directly into it. Um, that's the only way to deal with fear. I think he said, you know, uh, if you see a ghost, don't run from it. Walk directly into it and it'll disappear. The only way out is through. The only way out, exactly. The only way out of your fear is through your fear. If you turn and run from it, it'll grow. If you're, if you're a little bit afraid of social situations, continue to put yourself out there, no matter how uncomfortable it makes you feel. Now, I'm not talking about the 5% of people with agoraphobia. I, I'm not trying to make blanket statements. I think there are, are sliding scales here. But I often find myself, you know, I was a little bit nervous to do this interview. I, I, you know, I, you never know how it's going to go. But I stopped myself and I said, just be yourself. It doesn't always work out, but <laughs> sometimes it does. 
and it never goes terribly wrong. I think it's so important that we don't let fear rule our lives, but that's far too simple of a statement. You can't just let, not let it rule your life. You have to identify what it is and walk directly into it. And I think for each individual person, that's unique. And we're all going to come across new situations that create fear in us. And also, let's not forget, fear is there to keep us alive. You know, it's an evolutionary trait that we need. We're not looking to conquer fear. We're looking to find balance between fear and lack of fear. There's a, there's a middle ground that we're actually looking to find, which is, I think, we would call peace. That imperfect tension. Yeah, exactly. So, and then you know, once we find that, we'll find a new fear, and then then that's how life goes on, ebbing and flowing, yeah, all the way until you die. Yes. Yeah. Well, Kevin McShane, thank you so much for telling me your story. Thank you, Kaya. I appreciate it. <laughs> if you want to hear a much longer version of Kevin telling his story, check out that podcast I mentioned where I first heard him. It's called This Is Actually Happening, and it's a really cool show. Check it out. And if you're struggling, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is available 24-7. That number is 1-800-273-8255. And I really want to hammer home that if you're experiencing depression and or anxiety, don't rely on this story to inform you about anything other than how important it is to talk to your doctor and keep talking with your doctor, whether you're on medication or not. Audacious is produced by me, Jessica Severin Martinez and Katie Talarski at Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford. Thanks this week to Nicole Leonard, who covers healthcare here at Connecticut Public. She did some really important fact-checking for this episode. Subscribe to Audacious, and you'll always get to hear the show a day early. Plus, if you like this show, scroll on through that podcast playlist and check out the one about why one man chose to replace his racist tattoo with a giant rose. And you can listen to the episode about what it's like for two women who wholeheartedly regret having children. Visit ctpublic.org slash audacious or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Send me your reactions and show ideas on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Kion Wolf, And my email is cwolf at ctpublic.org. And online use the hashtag audaciouspublic. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>